Okay, how is everyone this morning? Um, I'd just briefly like to turn your attention to this little humdinger of a book here. It's been on the uh, bookshelf there for a, a couple of weeks now, Rediscover Church. And we've just finished a series on the church, but uh, today's sermon is, is still very much soaked in that theme. But at the beginning of most of these chapters in this book, there's a very helpful synopsis of what a church is. And if we just read down through the headings, just to kind of put today's sermon in a sort of a context, a church is a group of Christians who assemble as an earthly embassy of Christ's heavenly kingdom to proclaim the good news and commands of Christ the King, to affirm one another as his, as his citizens through the ordinances, and to display God's own holy, holiness and love through a unified and diverse people in all the world, and this pertains to us today, following the teaching and example of elders. So we're going to touch on elders today, and Adam, next week as well, will be giving a second installment on this text in conjunction with 1 Timothy. Um, let's pray before we begin. Father, we just lift up your name this morning. Um, that this message would make you sweet to the people who are here, that this message would give them more and more encouragement in their faith, in this eternal hope that is kept up for them, as Peter says, and that this sermon and this message and these words of yours, Father, would uh, inspire them to love you deeper and to get to know you deeper. And we pray as well, before we forget, for Adam out in Furbo, who is just beginning his message at this time as well, that um, these messages would glorify you, would lift up your name, and would encourage us, and make us joyful in you. In Jesus' name, we pray, amen. Well, you know what? This world and this culture of ours, the Irish in particular maybe, we're, we're sports nuts, aren't we? And what we're looking at today is... Um, Qualities are traits in people that we look up to. And social media, as we know as well, today is full of, I think I laugh when I hear it, social influencers. <laughs> and I don't know what they're influencing or what direction they're influencing, but there's a lot of influencers out there. But if you were to sit down and try and think of, you know, some good traits that a leader should have, or at least aspire to have. And I checked in Mr. Google and I found reams and reams of traits that leaders should, should have. You know, some of them were a bit funny, you know, 30, 30 traits. I mean, come on, 30 traits? If you have to read through 30 traits to become a leader or to learn how to become a leader, there's something wrong there. But this one caught my eye. It's from the Harvard Business School. So, you know, it has a bit of gravitas. So it is a business school, but nevertheless, here we go. They have six traits. Emotional intelligence is the first one. Two, leaders should be good communicators. Three, good leaders should have the ability to bring out the best performances in people. Four, good leaders should be self-aware. Five, they should be resilient. And six, seeing that it is a business school, they should be financial, financially literate. That would be handy going into the world of business. But, you know, many of these characteristics, or some of them at least, are, are pretty good. They're traits that, that are handy if you're in leadership roles. But what we're asking ourselves here today is, 
Are there any additional traits that a leader in a church might need that perhaps these leaders don't aspire to or don't deem necessary? And I think there is. Now, the reason why we can look at a list like this from Harvard Business School and give the thumbs up to some of them is because God has created us. God has wired us. In fact, God has wired us to look up to models, to, <laughs> I don't like to use the word, to influencers. People who influence us in good or positive ways, we look up to, and we even find ourselves drawn to people like that. It's good when they're good, but when they're bad influencers or bad role models, well, then it, it's not good at all. But God has wired us uh, to be relationally seeking. And when we see someone who is good at making connections, good at making relationships, good at reconciling people who have differences to us, we do look up to them and we regard them well, and so we should. But it's telling that this list from Harvard doesn't seem to include stuff that we in this room would value. For example, there's not much mention in this of integrity, generosity, or the greater good of people. And you would imagine that someone with that instilled in their hearts as a leader, that they would be good traits as well. You know what, these, th these type of lists might indicate, especially in Harvard, that this model of leadership is more concerned with margins of profit than mercy, and the greater good of the company than the greater good of society. But the leaders who God chooses to lead his church have to be so special. They have to display the best trait for what, you know, for, for, um, from what the people in this world hold up to as noble and good, but they also have to have additional ones. And in this morning's text, we see Paul talking to his longtime buddy and co-worker, Titus, and telling him what to look out for in these new elders that he is to choose amongst all the churches in Crete. Imagine, I mean, imagine, Will, if you had to go and, and, and just in the morning choose elders for a large amount of churches. Okay, it would help that you know the people, and, you know, Titus did know these people in Crete because he was working and living there for a while. But nevertheless, it was a huge responsibility, wasn't it? Especially when we consider the Cretan culture at that time. Most of these churches would have been small house churches. They weren't big mega churches, well established. They were fragile. In fact, they were in chaos, influenced heavily by the world around them. People had bought in their ideas of cultural norms, of moral standards, of false gods, and were looking at this new God of the Bible, this Trinitarian God, and some of them still were looking at them through the lens of their gods, their former god Zeus. Another problem, of course, then, is even their own prophet or even their own poet, Epimenides, in chapter 1, verse 12, speaks of the Cretan people like this. He says, they are liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. <laughs> so we have to think at least that many of the people in the churches were just fledgling Christians coming in from such an audience. And Paul then sticks the knife in even further. He says, this testimony about the Cretans is true. <laughs> So that gives us an idea of the background to which Titus is working as he's trying to go around fulfilling Paul's instruction to pick suitable elders for these churches. And not only that, there were many big towns in Crete. So it wasn't that he had to just pick a handful of elders. This job was big. 
Now briefly, just, I'm sure some of you have noticed there as um, Sarah was reading the text, that in verse 5 we see that there's a usage made of the term elder. And then in verse 7 it seems to indicate overseer, or in the King James Version, to confuse things even more, it says bishops. Now they're all really interchangeable. Elder has the Greek meaning of presbyteros, and it implies the maturity and dignity of a man, whereas bishop, episcopus, indicates his work as an overseer. And even the term pastor, or shepherd, is also the same office. So all these terms are interchangeable, just in case anyone is confused and thinks, well, is pastor different from an elder? Is elder different from an overseer? They're all the same office. Now, we have to think that Titus had no committee. He had no board to help him choose these elders. How would you feel about that? To choose elders in a string of churches, in a fledgling church that was in chaos, trying to glorify God, and the whole job is left on your own shoulders. Well, it says something about Titus's character, doesn't it? And it certainly says something about Paul's opinion of Titus. Paul was absolutely convinced that Titus was a godly man and would have the wisdom and godliness to pick in a fair-mannered fair, fair way elders, the best elders that God would himself would have chosen. Elders that wouldn't cause more disorder. And you know what? Disorder was the problem. In verse 6 we see that these elders and verse 7s and verse 7 the overseers were to be above reproach, blameless. And he repeats this twice. So this must be important. Above reproach and blameless as some translations have. Now when we read this in English we think, boy, that's a high mark, isn't it? We sitting here today in this church, none of us would say we're blameless. None of us would say we're above reproach. And yet Paul is telling Titus, make sure you pick men who are blameless or above reproach. I mean, come on, no one is like that, are we? This is just too hard, Paul. Titus is going to be forever finding men that are blameless. Well, you see, it helps to read the original language here. What Paul means is that the candidates would not be flawless or faultless or without blemish. That would discount everyone. But that these candidates would be without blame, unaccused. That there should be nothing found out against them or nothing held up against them, showing them that they were in the wrong. So the potential elder should, as some translations as well, this might help us, should be of unquestioned integrity. Or another translation says, impeachable. Or we could paraphrase it, marred by no disgrace. Because after all, the office of elder was a public one. So there should be nothing held against any potential candidate, either within or outside the church. This leader, or this potential leader, had to be held in high esteem from within and also outside in society. So Paul is recognizing here that the pastorate is a public office. So Paul has to zone in then, funnily enough, on the private life of the elder. And for the next verse, Paul zones in, and we could, we could sort of summarize it as the elder and his family. Now this next verse is tricky, and this next verse um, holds many differing opinions, or holds two, or three, or four. 
or as one commentator said, five different opinions. And we're not going to get into that today because this is supposed to be one of these summer-shortened sermons. But anyways, let's see what we can make of it. The elders, Paul says in verse 6, must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, that causes disputes, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. That also causes much debating. Now, the husband of one wife, again, if we read it on the surface, seems to indicate in English, at least, that it must be a married man, which would, you know, on the surface, it would seem to discount a single man or a man who is biblically divorced and is now with one wife again from ever holding the office. Now, I don't think exactly what this is what Paul means. I think what Paul means here, and what we must do here, is we must interpret Scripture with Scripture. We must also look at the entire context. And the context here at the time is, obviously, of Crete, where many of these men, and in fact, we saw there on the little video that Russell played last week, many of these men were mercenaries or former mercenaries, where polygamy was very, very common on the island, where there was much debauchery and sexual immorality on the island. And what Paul here is saying is that, and this is the essence of it, once you get into the language, is that this candidate must be a one-woman man. He must be loyal and faithful to one woman and love one woman. We can see that the selection pool for Paul here in Crete was not, was not very deep. What Paul is saying here is, Titus, make sure these guys only have one wife. That's our starting point, Titus. And I think that's the context that we have to read this in. And then Paul goes on and he says, his children are to be believers and not open to the charge of debauchery of in, or insubordination. Now again, we might look at this on the surface and say, well, this seems to indicate that an elder has to have believing children. And that if an elder doesn't have believing children, that discounts him from being an elder. Now again, the language here will help us. The Greek language here for believers is pistis, P-I-S-T-A-S, which can also mean faithful. So Paul, again, if we put this in context, is saying that the potential elder must be a man who is able to bring chaos under order, who is able to bring order out of disorder. In other words, if we look at the elder's family life, and especially his relationship with his children, he must be able to be a man who is able to bring order to do sometimes, let's be honest with, disorder of ch children in our families, who revel in disorder and slothfulness <laughs> and laziness and casualness and not self-control. But this pastor must be a man who is able to bring order. His children must be submissive and obedient to him. And this, I think, is the meaning here. If we go the other way and say, well, no, let's, let's go down the track and say that the pastor, all his children must be believers, then we're kind of entering a very murky world where the salvation of the children is inherently on the pastor's own shoulders, that he in some way is an agent of their salvation and not God. Or what about if you had an argument where a pastor had 10 children? Nine of them were faithful. One was not. Would that discount him? 
Surely not. Surely with nine children well reared, faithful and saved, born again, that that would indicate that the pastor is a man of order and a man of God and a man who the children looked up to and a man who instilled good Christian values and a love for the gospel in the children? Should he be discounted because of one child who is rebellious? What's the meaning or the meaning, the gist of the meaning here is that the children should not be insubordinate. That means not obedient or as the ESV says, uh, full of debauchery. And the picture here is that they shouldn't be like the prodigal son. They shouldn't uh, partake debauchery and sexual behavior, drinking and dr probably nowadays drugs, but that they should be submissive and obedient to their father. Because really, let's look at it. The big point here is this, that the way a pastor or a potential elder um, fathers his family within the four walls of his house at home, that gives a very good picture of how he will father God's family within the four walls of any church. Because any fathers, and I'm not a father, but I've been teaching most of my life, so I've had plenty of interaction uh, with kids. But as any father, and indeed any mother will tell you, the stresses of family life at home can become quite unbearable. There can be many times when a man and a woman's character, indeed the mother's character, is tested to the fullest, is probed and needled by children who just will not toe the line at times. Now, how does a man react to that? That's the test of elder material. You know what I mean when I talk about prickly children, like Maybe during the hot weather we had there a while ago, kids at the back of the car who for the 10th time in a stuffy car might say, Dad, are we there yet? Or maybe the child that would look up hotly at his father and say, No. Or why do I have to do that, Dad? These are the things that stress fathers out. These are the things that cause tensions. These are the things that can cause arguments and fights at home. And what Paul is saying here to Titus is, pick a man who can handle his family, life, his family life well. That's the man you need for ministry. You don't want a father who is too abrasive with his kids at home, who is too maybe legalistic, authoritarian. I mean, no one would want him as a pastor, would we? At the same time, you don't want a father who's too lax, who's too disorderly, who's too slow to discipline, who allows the kids to have too much freedom. That won't work either inside the four church walls. The successful father, and listen to this, is the father who doesn't try to control the kids' behavior, or indeed the flock's behavior, but who tries to change their hearts so that they're motivated by the love and grace and mercy of their father, of their pastor, to follow the road that's best. Otherwise, any ministry will fail. Any elder, any pastor, any overseer, their ministries will fail if they don't realize this. If they try to use strong-arm tactics that perhaps work in a limited way with their children to govern their flock, it will fail. The second point that Paul then draws the attention to is he kind of talks about the elders and their relationship with others. In other words, the character traits of elders and how this impacts the potential elders' relationship with others. 
Paul says in verse 7, they must be God's steward. And again, Paul is implying or or impressing on on Titus the responsibility of the role. Because the steward was a manager in the old days. We don't hear that word much nowadays. We might hear an ear steward or an ear stewardess. But in the old days, the steward was a manager of an estate and he was accountable to his overlord or to his boss. And Paul says here that the potential elder must be a steward in God's house. In fact, the potential elder must be a steward in two houses, his own house at home and God's house within the four walls of the church. And one of the jobs of the steward was to, you know, to bring order to the household, to organize the household, but also to feed the household. So the father at home brings home hopefully the week's pay so that the meat and two veg can be bought for the kids. And also the same father as an elder feeds the flock with the word of God. I love when Liam O'Neill out in Furbo asks me to preach now and again. He says, when are you coming, Porrick? The flock are getting hungry. <laughs> and I, I never forget that. That's exactly it. The flock are getting hungry. And you know what? We can testify to this ourselves. We came to this church this morning hungry. Hungry to sing the praises of God, hungry to fellowship, and hungry to hear the word. You know, we want to hear God's heart in the words that we listen to in the sermon. We want to hear, we want to see ourselves changed. We want to see our hearts changed when we walk in that door. We want to see it softened. We, often, we want to see ourselves um, feel more like Jesus and look more like Jesus as we sing his praises, as we think of the wonderful things that he's done for us in the gospel. We want to feel that we're different people going out. We want to feel more equipped, more confident, more encouraging of spreading the good news and the gospel. We don't want to leave the church deflated, negative. We want to feel it fueled. And this is the word of God that fuels us. Certainly it's the word of God that fuels me during the week. We want to be changed. I love this verse in Jeremiah, chapter 3, verse 15. Jeremiah says, And I will give you shepherds after my own heart, who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. And these shepherds, Paul now says in verse 7, again repeats and reminds us must be above reproach. And he now gives us two lists. He He gives us a list of five knots that these elders must not be, and he gives us a list of six they must be. So these must-nots were traits that were common in Crete at the time. Paul doesn't pick these out of the sky. The first one he picks is arrogant. Now, arrogance, as we know, and we're all guilty of it, and we can all attest to the fact that we know arrogant people in our lives. Sometimes they might even be our bosses at work, and it's difficult working with people that are arrogant. They have this exaggerated sense of their own importance. You know, we should look, if we think we're arrogant, ask ourselves, was Christ arrogant? No, he wasn't. He wasn't one bit arrogant. And even though people today put claims against Christ that he was arrogant, that he was puffed up, he was able to back everything he said with actions. He never spoke a lie. And Paul says, as we saw earlier, that Crete was an island of liars. And so he's saying, do not be arrogant. These men must not be arrogant. They must be Truthful, they must look on themselves in the light of truth, not have an elevated opinion of themselves. 
The second thing he says, and this might have be, you know, alluded to the fact that most of these men were past mercenaries, they mustn't be quick-tempered. As I was studying for the sermon, one of the words which came up was peppery. I haven't heard that word in a long, long time. It's an old English word. You can imagine if someone sprinkled some pepper on your nose, the first thing you do is sneeze. These men must not be peppery. When they come up with situations that might test them, they mustn't be quick-tempered to react. They must be steady men. Of course, then he mentions they mustn't be drunks. That's self-explanatory, and drinking was a problem on the island. They mustn't be violent. Now, this word has also the meaning of they mustn't be violence in speech. I think we have that term today. Maybe I'm wrong, but we have that term today, passive-aggressive, don't we? People who like to get their own way. Um, an old English word as well is people who browbeat or who like to browbeat or brow they're browbeaters. In other words, they sort of wear you down. They, they just <laughs> make you lose the, the will to argue or to live until they get their way. They mustn't be violent in this way. And of course, as we'll see in the coming weeks, these false teachers, these men, mustn't be greedy for gain. And then Paul moves on in verse 8 to a list of what they must be. They absolutely must be these. He says they must be hospitable. They must be a lover of good. They must be self-controlled. They must be upright, holy, and disciplined. Paul told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, he said, Be imitators of me as I, as I am of Christ. And once again, as I mentioned at the beginning, when we hold up models, our role models, one of the traits that, that's most desirable um, is that the leader should be in some way above the others. While this mightn't be true, the perception is that leaders are above others better than others, and we know this is not true. We know we all struggle with sin in our lives. We know the elder does struggle with sin in his life. But the flock do tend to look up to the elder, whether this is good or bad. And as we saw in other churches in Ireland, the 80s and the 90s, when the elders fail, when the priests fail, the whole thing came crashing down. So we must not hold too firmly to the idea that the elder is above reproach, that the elder is perfect. But what Paul is saying here is that in the elder, there should be particular traits, hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. Might you be able to pick out the most important one of those? And also you could apply that one as well to the five must-nots that we've just read. And I think the most important one there that Paul is pressing in on is that an elder must be self-controlled. This was to be the overriding mark of a man of God. And let me add, this is to be the most overriding mark of the child of God. All of us in this room are asked to hold to these traits just as the elder is. Men who, you can imagine what the, the, the Cretans would have thought of these particular traits in a leader. This would have been so at odds with their own leaders. This would have been so at odds with the people that they met on the street every day as to be profoundly radical. 
You can imagine them talking amongst themselves. Your God is truthful. Your God is truth. Our God, Zeus, <laughs> we, we revel in the fact that he lies and that he tricks people to get his way. This, this God of yours actually is truthful and you can take him on face value. This God of yours is concerned for your good. This God of yours is upright, a lover of good. How can this, how can this be? You can imagine the Cretans being absolutely gobsmacked by this new God. And this is the God that must be reflected in elders and indeed in the flock to make God tasty to those around us. The third point that Paul zones in then on is the elder and his relationship with the word of God. So he's pointed out how the elder should behave at home, how he should relate to his family. He's pointed out some great traits that the elder should have and some traits that definitely an elder shouldn't have. And now he points out how should the elder relate to the word of God and the gospel. A bit like a knowledge of business literacy is important for someone attending Harvard. You'd imagine that someone who wants to be a pastor or an elder would be interested in the Bible, interested in the gospel, interested in the word. And so it is. Paul in verse 9 says he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also able to rebuke those who contradict it. So Paul makes no apologies that the man of God must be a man of the book to serve two purposes. A, to be able to teach it and B, to be able to rebuke those who contradict it. And the two of those, to be able to teach it and to be able to rebuke or to be able to stand up for the gospel, rely on the same thing. The man of God must know the gospel, must know and understand the word. He cannot rebuke if he doesn't know, if he doesn't have an arsenal to fight back with, if he doesn't have weapons that he can draw on the word, how can he fight back? And he must be able to teach it. So the elders must be men who are fueled in the word, not given over sort of to fads or customs that are hip in the church in contemporary times, but must primarily have a passion and a desire to be able to teach and govern the flock through the word. To be a vessel through which the word comes. Not that people would look at the pastor themselves and say, the message ends with that man who's speaking to me now. No, but the message that that man is delivering is what's important. This is how the graces flow. They should hold tightly to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 to 17. All scripture, all scripture is breathed out by God. I was speaking to a man a couple of weeks ago. He said, I'm a man of the New Testament. He said, I don't have much regard for that Old Testament. I was kind of going, no, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Listen, that the man of God may be complete and the woman of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. You see, Paul knew that these false teachers that were um, fighting the infant churches would get down and dirty. Paul knew that this fight would last a while. Paul knew that they had to be ready and they had to be immersed and seeped in the word so that they could combat these false teachers. You know, as an elder, this sermon was not easy for me to preach. Um, I would much rather listen to someone preaching about elders than having to preach about elders myself. Um, I know many of my own faults and my own shortcomings, 
and I'm sure I have many others that I can't see or that are not obvious to me and that people in this room probably do see. And you're more than welcome to gently remind me. Um, leaders, whatever lead or whatever field they lead in, because of their elevated position that they hold, they are prone to losing sight of why they're there. They're prone to getting, as Paul says, prone to getting arrogant, perhaps, or big-headed. Sometimes when people come up to me after a sermon and say, well, thanks very much, that was great, that was brilliant, you're really, you're really doing good. Uh, you know, you can say, thank you, thank God. As Jason once told me, I said, Jason, what do you, what do you say when people come up to you and, and they're kind of, their eyes are bigger, they say, gee, that was great. And Jason said, well, just say thank God, give glory to God. And that is so true. But sometimes, you know, you can drive home and you can kind of feel warm and fuzzy and kind of go, you know, hey, I didn't do a bad job there today. So leaders need to be taken down by the flock as well. We need to be kept in check with grace and mercy, just as leaders try and keep the flock in check with grace and mercy and the word of God. I was listening to, um, I was listening to a sermon um, on the net there during the week, and the pastor was speaking on this very topic. And he was relating a story when he was in a car once on a long drive with the family, with his wife and the kids, and they were getting very touchy. And um, he had to rebuke them. So he, he rebuked two of the kids that were having a, an argument in the back, and he, he, he admitted himself he went, he went overboard. And when he'd finished his little rant, as he said himself, one of his teenage kids says, and this is another loving sermon from your loving pastor. <laughs> And he just looked at his wife and he kind of went, oh, man. <laughs> and he later said he was sorry, but the kids were there to correct him. Not that it's appropriate all the time for your kids to correct you, but if you do wrong, it is appropriate that someone should correct you. But people are wired to look to models. We're all wired to look up to models. Paul looked up to Jesus. But you know what? This is not my church. This is not any of the elders' church here. This is God's church. We're just small shepherds that also need to be fed from the word of God. The chief shepherd is Jesus. And he is yet to come to gather all his churches together so that they may glorify him and the Father and the Spirit. So as a final word, let's turn to 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1 to 4. 1 Peter chapter 5, 1 to 4. Peter says, So I exhort the elders amongst you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be re revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is amongst you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Let's pray for this church. Father, we pray that uh, this church would have elders that would be good stewards um, of your family. Um, that Furbo Church would be the same and that Ornmore, of course, would also be the same, that they would be good stewards and good pastors 
governing those churches. Teaching and preaching the word, fueling the flock, feeding the flock, keeping themselves in check by comparing themselves with the word of God, the pure and righteous way that will correct them, the word that will be a light to their feet and a lamp. Father, we pray that the elders um, will be able to be held accountable to one another, that we would have a correctable heart, that we would be men who would be teachable ourselves, that, would be, that we would be compassionate and patient uh, with sinners, with people who um, are stubborn, um, perhaps unknowingly, uh, with people who sin repeatedly and don't seem to learn the lessons of the Bible or learn good counsel or take good advice. Father, help us to be persistent and gentle and compassionate with them like Christ. Help them to... Um, help us, Lord, to know the Word better. Help me to know the Word better. Help me to get into the Word more and more so that I can be a help. Not for the sake of knowing the Word, but that I can share the Word and know the Word. Help us above all in Galway City Baptist Church this morning to encourage one another and to remember our eternal hope in Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.